Welcome to the Biohackers Live Show. My name is Teemu Arena, and I'm your host today. Today, our guest is Dr. Tom Stubbs, and he is one of the top experts when it comes to epigenetics. I've done genetic tests myself, like 23andMe. I have uploaded my data also to a number of different services like DNA Fit and uh, uh, Prometheus. And there is a wonderful report done by Dr. Rhonda Patrick on nutrition. And there are all kinds of tools that you can use to analyze your uh, genetic data. But epigenetics is slightly different. It is also understanding how lifestyle affects your gene expression over time. And we can see things like environmental factors and stress affecting that status. And in this episode, we will also discover my biological age based on my uh, genetics, which I, I don't know yet the results. And I'm super eager to know if, you know, all these years of being an entrepreneur until the age of 30 and almost, you know, killing myself with an ulcer and a bunch of other health issues, which led me to the path of becoming a biohacker, has actually had a negative consequence into my genetic age. Or if all the biohacking that I've done in the last seven years actually is playing out to my favor. But we'll get to that soon in the episode itself. So, so with that, I would love to welcome uh, Dr. Tom Stubbs on the show. Welcome. Hi, Timu. Thank you for thank you for having me, and great to be great to be on the show. Wonderful. So tell me a little bit about your background. So what got you into genetics? Um, yeah, great question. So my background, I studied biochemistry, molecular and cellular biochemistry at Oxford, and then moved on to undertaking PhD and postdoctoral research at the University of Cambridge, specializing in epigenetics and epigenetic predictors of lifestyle factors on aging. And whilst at Cambridge, I was fortunate enough to work with some of the founders in the field of epigenetics research. So, for instance, Professor Wolf Reich, uh, in addition to Professor Shankar Balasubramanian, who developed much of the technology used in the next generation sequencing machines today. Wonderful. So what can you tell me about the genetic sequencing technology so far? Uh, looking at the, you know, just the cost of sequencing the human genome seems like in the last 10 years, the cost has dropped from 10 years ago, around 10 million to sequence my genome, for example, to the current state where it's around a thousand US dollars or less. And uh, there's a bunch of consumer companies now in the market. So what can you tell us about the technology and the state where we are? Yeah, so I think I think there's a lot of there's a lot of exciting things happening. So as you mentioned, the the cost of next generation sequencing, as we call it, is is coming down. And as you mentioned, in addition, there are a number of uh, genotyping companies on the market uh, using a slightly different technology platform to that of next generation sequencing that we can perhaps get into uh, a bit later. And then what we're also now starting to see because of this um, drop now in the, the cost of sequencing is a whole range of other omics companies uh, starting to, to arrive on the scene. For instance, epigenetics. So the, the technology and the, 
the science that we use in our product um, would not have been available or anywhere near the current price point that it is today, three years ago. Right. Uh, so it's really been these technological advances that have enabled companies such as ourselves to offer um, the opportunity for people to understand their epigenome and how their environment and lifestyle is influencing their health over time. Mm. Right. So you have a bunch of different omics uh, around health and lifestyle that can be used like nutrigenomics and epigenetics. And uh, you can get, you know, also blood work and you can correlate that with your genetic tests as we go forward. Um, there's companies who are taking the data from your activity trackers, lifestyle, sleep quality, like the Oura Ring, and using those to then figure out that if your lifestyle, uh, let's say, lack of sleep is influencing things like your blood sugar management or even uh, genetic expression. So um, it's an exciting time to be uh, alive and uh, witness all of this happening. So in, in your opinion, how far are we from, as consumers at wide scale, being able to tap into relevant information coming from these devices? So, so far it's about quantification, getting the data, um, and there is some promising examples of actually turning that into actionable knowledge, um, not just numbers and interpretations you have to do yourself, but computers doing those interpretations for you. So, so how far are we from you know getting real benefits from all this personal data? As you say, the first part of this this revolution in in being able to quantify yourself at the level of your own genome. Uh, has has happened so the idea of just being able to get get those numbers out and then dive into interpretations yourself or if you have very specific applications uh for instance with rare diseases uh there are now companies set up to analyze and provide those insights and as you're mentioning now i think what's exciting is going to be the second stage of this so going beyond just being able to access this information and actually turning it into, as you say, actionable insights that people can improve their health of. Uh, in terms of the time time frame for that, I would say we are we're already there. And from this point forward, it's only going to start. It's only going to continue to improve hmm. uh, to the point where you can access inf this information and perhaps in five to ten years' time generate the data for it for yourself in your own home. Right. So um, there is actually one company coming to the Biker Summit called Bisu, and they are doing urine analysis. And in the, their opinion, we are not too far from, you know, you going to the toilet in the morning and getting toilet as a service that is analyzing your biomarkers, that being all the things that you're leaving with every day. And uh, then getting that to the cloud so that you get an idea of uh, the output part of, uh, of your body in a, in a way that enables us to understand in real time how health is changing. And when it comes to genetics, I've done the 23andMe test. I've used that to, to look at my results on different services. And 
genetic test is something that you do like once and you can use the code. Um, so what is the benefit of doing it repeatedly? Because Chronomics enables you to repeat the test several times so that you can see some changes. So what is going on here? Does our genetic code change? And what is the benefit of tracking um, uh, the changes? Yeah, great, great question. And I'm glad glad we have the opportunity to discuss this. So we're all used to thinking about that genetic information, as you said, that you can get parts of, small fractions of from a 23andMe test um, that's ruling over us from birth, uh, determining your eye color, whether you're going to have curly hair or not. And as we mentioned earlier in the discussion, certain rare diseases that perhaps are inherited. Let me interrupt we you also, for a while. So yeah. uh, you said a fraction. Isn't the 23andMe yes. test a full genome report? No. So 23andMe is using a genotyping array technology. And there, they're only looking at a fraction of your total genome. So in every single one of us, uh, the, human, the human genome is 3 billion letters long. And we have two copies of it, one that we get from our mom and one that we get from our dad. And, and this you can access now using whole genome sequencing technology that you mentioned earlier. Uh, and the cost of that technology is coming down uh, year, year upon year. Um, from the start of the, the century when it was, you know, close, <laughs> closer to the billion pound mark to now, as you say, coming under a thousand pounds. And that trend is only set to, to drop further. Uh, in the case of genotyping, so the technology that companies such as 23andMe use, they are using arrays. And there they're looking at a proportion of genetic positions or letters in your genome um, that have certain information for specific things they want to look at. And there they're looking at, depending on the chip you're using, uh, between 600,000 positions and 900,000 positions. So far less than your, your total whole genome sequence. I see. So did they select them based on the uh, SNPs that might have some beneficial information or, or is it completely random? Yeah, so it's not, it's not completely random. It was chosen to highlight uh, common variants within human populations. So differences that are common within people. But as we've now seen with more and more whole genome sequencing, when it comes to diseases and understanding rare diseases and things, things of that nature, it's typically the rare differences that matter. Uh, so when it comes to disease, it's not necessarily the most common differences between people that are the major influences, but actually those differences that only occur in one in one in 10,000 people or one in 1,000 right. people. So, so would the consequence of this be that if I do a 23andMe test and it is telling me that I might have, let's say, uh, perhaps a reduced risk for a kidney disease, uh, but if we look at the full genome, there might be a, a rare combination that actually increases my risk for having a, a severe uh, kidney malfunction later in life because of a rare disease condition. So is that kind of what we are saying here? Is that because we don't have the full genome and we have, don't have the full data, it might change the result if we did the whole thing? 
Yeah, I mean, that's, that's not beyond the realms of possibility. So you are, with a 23andMe test or test like it, you are sampling from a set of positions uh, that influence, as you say, kidney disease or something like that. Um, but all you know is what you've sampled and what you can get at from the positions you've sampled. You don't know what you're not seeing. Uh, and that's the benefit of the, the whole genome sequence where you're looking at almost all of your genome. Right. Uh, although there are still portions of the human genome that are difficult to assess properly. Now, if you are looking at uh, a full genome report, so is that what you're, you guys are doing? No, so just to, I guess, continue with the what is, what is epigenetics. So as I said, that that genetic information is ruling over you from birth and determining, as we spoke about, eye color or perhaps kidney disease, predispositions and things like that. But there are people on the planet that share the exact same genetic material, so identical twins. And yet there are many instances where one twin uh, could become sick, for instance, developing breast cancer, and the other one does not. And the question is, how can this happen? And the answer is epigenetics which is the science of how your environment and your lifestyle affect how your DNA is controlled. So from birth, epigenetic signals influenced by factors such as smoking, sleep, and stress are dictating the tracks that your life is heading down. Right. And what's exciting is that unlike that genetic information that's fixed from birth, epigenetics is dynamic, it's actionable. And that means that if you find out about these things early enough, you can change the tracks your life is heading down to avoid future ill health. Right. So uh, let me take some examples from my own uh, DNA results and practical kind of lifestyle changes that I've done. Uh, so, so one thing that I'm disposed for is um, uh, celiac disease. And, uh, but I have not been diagnosed uh, to actually have celiac disease. Now, uh, I've, I also have higher occurrence of um, different kind of hay fevers, and I've definitely had that in my life. But when I changed my diet uh, a few years ago, quite drastically by reducing the intake of, um, of wheat products and uh, going more on a ketogenic style, intermittent fasting, cyclical ketogenic diet, I noticed that my allergies went away and also i mean definitely i don't have any 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 problems with wheat anymore or even celiac disease because i'm even avoiding uh, those proteins so um is there something you can say on that so is that an example of an epigenetic change where i'm no longer getting you know uh, hay hay fever um in the summertime yeah, so I think that's a it's a great example. And I'd say the main the main distinction I make in terms of the, the types of diseases um, is to do with disease penetrance. So if you have certain genetic variants, how certain it is that you are gonna have that disease. And when it comes to lots of these complex diseases, so you mentioned celiac disease but also when it comes to things like uh, type 2 diabetes or heart disease or cancers, these age-related diseases are incredibly complex and are not solely derived 
in the majority of cases, from that genetic baseline. But there's a huge component of it that is, that is due to environment and lifestyle risk. And, and this is what you can get out using epigenetics. So from epigenetics, you can understand the impact that different environment and lifestyle exposures are having on your risk for age-related diseases. So what you're saying is that with lifestyle, I could change my odds of getting a specific disease. So with an epigenetic test, I could do lifestyle changes and see if that is increasing my risk for things like heart disease or reducing my risk. Yeah, so I guess, yeah, the take-home the take home point and the point that we always try to get across is that your, your genetics does not determine your health outcomes in the vast majority of cases. And, and actually, as you say, the way you live your life, the environment in which you live your life are huge factors that influence your, your risk of ill health. So to take a specific example with some numbers on it. Uh, so if we think of heart disease and we take the, the genetic risk component for heart disease. So we know that there are some people that are naturally at higher risk of heart disease than other people. And when you quantify that, you're talking about a fourfold difference. So that means that the people that are most at risk are four times more likely to develop heart disease than people that are at least at risk. And, and when you hear that in the absence of anything else, that sounds, that sounds pretty scary. If you're in that top, that top percentage of people who are more likely to get heart disease from a genetic perspective, but it's, it's taking it out of context of, everything that's influencing your risk of heart disease. And when you also account for environment, lifestyle, and, and the aging process, what you see is that your, your risk component is actually 5,000-fold. So the people who, due to their environment and their lifestyle, are at higher risk are 5,000 times more likely to develop heart disease than people that are at lowest risk. So... Mm-hmm. Putting it into context with those environment and lifestyle components, really, it really starts to, to help to show people that we're not predisposed. And there's a whole host of things we can do that are within our control to stay healthy. Okay, let me try something and ask you, because I don't know this field, but I know something about my genetic test and I'm a, I'm a total beginner on this. But let's say if I had APOE4, I don't have that, but I read that APOE4 increased risk for Alzheimer's disease and coronary heart disease and uh, doesn't seem to, be, seem to go well with high cholesterol, uh, which is actually pretty high in Northern Hemisphere population, Finland. And um, yeah, then there is the FTO gene that increases your risk of becoming obese and I have a friend uh, who is actually, by the way, coming to speak at the Biker Summit as one of the keynotes. So that's one of the guys from Mad Ventures. We did a genetic test on them. And we noticed that the guy who's a little bit bigger, <laughs> he has the FTO gene. So he went on a diet uh, to change that. And he looks much healthier now. So would you say that people who have APOE4 or people who have FTO, um, that genetic uh, marker might inform them that they might be in a higher risk group. Would an epigenetic test help them then to track if they are on the right path in reducing their odds or not? 
Yeah, so as you say, with, with APOE4 and FTO, these are both genes that contain variants that are associated with increased risk to, as you say, things like Alzheimer's and obesity. Um, but as we're, we're talking about, these are predispositions. So these are risks from birth. And in the case of APOE4, depending on the, the variants or combinations that you have, that risk can actually be quite, quite significant. But what, it's, what those tests, those genetic tests are not accounting for is the environment and lifestyle component of ill health. So if we talk about FTO and obesity, obesity is one of those traits that, yes, there are genetic variants, but in the vast majority of cases, a huge amount is down to environment and lifestyle and, and diet and understanding yourself and, and working with your body. And, and epigenetics provides you with the opportunity to see where you are currently and to measure yourself as you progress through life as a function of your disease risks. Okay, wonderful. So um, let's, let's go deeper even with this. Uh, so um, if we take something like um, uh, a busy uh, salaryman, basically a businessman who is running from one meeting to another, is exposed to extreme amounts of stress, sleep deprivation, uh, crossing time zones, being basically doing all the things wrong from what we know statistically from, um, you know, all, all these warriors out there. And uh, some of them seem to do pretty well and some of them don't. And uh, so there's individual differences, certainly. When we wrote the Biohacker Stress Manual, which is a book that we published here in Finland about stress. Uh, while looking at the genetics, uh, I noticed that there is some research that shows that people who li- whose ancestors lived things like Holocaust or famine, um, their ability to cope with stress genetically and practically seems to be, uh, in some cases, uh, they have... Uh, higher sensitivity to stress, so that might have served survival, uh, you know, uh, in in their offspring and themselves also, and um, and and some of them don't. Um, so, uh, how do you view this? Uh, like, could it be that my grandfather's, you know, the fact that they were in war? might prepare me for becoming a salaryman warrior running from one meeting to another compared to someone else. Or maybe I'm highly sensitive to signals and I'm more easily to to get stressed um, because of that also. It's also served survival, perhaps, uh, because I was more careful and, and more worried. Uh, so, so what's your view on that? And how many generations can we go back and see that genes get passed down, the epigenetic changes get passed down to our offspring. Yeah, so this is a, yeah, I guess a really interesting topic and covers a lot of a lot of different areas. So from the genetic side of things, we know that there are genetic variants associated with different different types of personality, for instance. Um, and those sorts of things genetic variants also impact your your ability to handle handle stressful situations and things like that. Uh, what we also know is that 
to an extent, uh, there are examples where from one generation to the next, epigenetic experiences can be, can be passed on. And I put that with a bit of a, a caveat in terms of the exact nature of those um, transfers, if you like, from one generation to the next uh, are, are hotly debated. Uh, and <clears throat> what we do know is that definitely uh, in utero, uh, so during pregnancy, there's a lot of evidence showing that if people are exposed to famine, for instance, then that has, um, that has an impact on the birth weight and subsequent weight of the offspring. Uh, so that, if you like, the, the child is aware of the environment that the mother is living in. And we also I've know also, that from sorry the case to of... Sorry to, sorry to interrupt. I've also read that it might influence uh, blood sugar control. So the way how your body deals with uh, high blood sugar, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All these different variables linked to metabolism are being altered at an epigenetic level uh, due to the experiences that the mother is exposed to. And what we've also now more recently seen is that similar, um, similar transmission can occur through a male as well, uh, so through sperm. What's, what's more contentious is what happens two, three, four generations upstream. So again, an interesting point to, to note is that when a mother is pregnant, the, the cells, the uh, oocytes the that are going to create the grandchild or give rise to the grandchild are already present uh, inside in the womb. So you have three generations of inheritance that can be happening in an in utero way. Uh, and that's often been something that's made these transgenerational studies hard to disentangle because what is coming truly from the environment and then passing it on to the next generation and what is due to that that offspring or that child inside the womb being exposed to those things themselves. Um, what we do also know from an epigenetics perspective, uh, at least in mammals, is that a huge amount of past memories are erased during um, during fertilization, so at the moment the egg and sperm come together. Um, however, there are regions of the genome that are maintained, and these regions of the genome that are maintained tend to be associated with repetitive elements. So, for instance, uh, elements that used to be viruses that have now co-opted and started to live alongside us within our genome uh, and also now function as regions that control gene expression. So some of those regions maintain some form of memory, but a huge number of the regions lose that epigenetic memory. And this is quite distinct to other organisms. So C. elegans, which is a type of worm, has been really well studied because it has a very short lifespan. Uh, and in C. elegans, you can have 10, 20 generations of transgenerational inheritance. Uh, and those trans transgenerational uh, phenotypes can affect things like lifespan. They can affect things like metabolism. They can affect things like libido. Uh, and so you can see in different organisms, 
there's different propensity to remember what previous generations right. were exposed to. So what you're saying is that if your father or grandfather had a huge libido, you could have one also. <laughs> if if you're a worm, yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. So there's definitely species differences, but I guess a worm is the easiest way to study some of these things because they live such a short life. So you see the epigenetic changes happening. Now, if we take Let's say, um, I mean, if you take the things that you know right now from genetics and knowing that certain things influence the mother while the child is in the womb uh, or the father at the time when the the egg was fertilized, um, so what would you do? Would you do things like strength training before going to the bed uh, with your lady? Uh, or as a woman, would you change your diet while you're pregnant uh, or stop smoking? What would you do? Yeah, it's a, a great question. There's a whole whole body of literature, I guess, looking at this. Um, you mentioned you mentioned smoking, and I guess smoking is a an easy instance where where we see a transgenerational effect. Uh, and what you see is that if you know a mother is continuing to smoke while pregnant, that has um epigenetic outcomes for for the offspring and those outcomes are also associated with uh earlier life disease disease risks as well so there's a the kind of whole host of follow-on things because of that environmental exposure so definitely um leading up to during pregnancy um and even in the early years subsequent to, to pregnancy there's huge importance in ensuring um good environmental and lifestyle um support if you like for that offspring right so what would you do like just theoretically yeah so if i did smoke i would stop <laughs> uh for sure um you also have living living within a polluted environment uh so you need to remember that while this epigenome is being set up is is one of the most um, precious precious points in time, and so it's really something where you want to reduce any any pollutant exposures, chemical exposures. Uh, you also want to be keeping fit and active, and I think if the the famine uh, type situations is anything to go by, you also want to be preparing the child for the environment that they're going to walk into. Mm. Uh, so. You know, if you're walking into an environment where there isn't much food, you don't want to be eating tons of stuff um, necessarily as a mother, um, or else then your your child will not be as efficient at metabolizing stuff when they're born and struggle to put on weight. Let's say. I see. Um, and that's that's the whole basis of the what's called the thrifty phenotype hypothesis. Okay. Um, Interesting. So so basically, so yeah, so, basically things like. Um, if we can predict that our future generations are going to be eating as much sugar as we did or even more, you would start stuffing your face with uh, French fries? <clears throat> so I wouldn't advocate that either. <laughs> um, but they would be more aware of the environment that they're going into. Um, so issues happen where there's big disparity uh, in those environments. Uh, but really, I would say it's it's specific to 
to the mother, to the couple. Right. Um, and also, also depends on what you have available and what you can mm. control. So let's, let's change uh, or look at this from a different angle. So let's say you want to have a healthy child. You stopped smoking. You started eating a healthy diet. And you do that through pregnancy and maybe before. And once the child is born, uh, you may want to continue the early ages uh, or, or early, early, early age of that child also feeding that child, you know, similar diet, for example, instead of, you know, when once they want candy, you throw out candy at them, even though you had some salad while pregnant. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you want to you want to be having a healthy, a healthy, balanced, uh, balanced diet during pregnancy. And one thing I guess that we haven't mentioned that is really interesting as well from a, an epigenetic perspective is also during pregnancy, ensuring that um, ensuring that the mother is getting enough folic acid and folic acid is obviously Uh, a component of the one carbon uh, metabolism cycle, which is uh, essential for ensuring specific epigenetic marks are maintained. And um, one quite common, unfortunate um, issue surrounding pregnancy is when there are folate deficiencies uh, and the um, unfortunate abnormalities that happen due to that, um, which is why it's recommended that women take supplements for these things during pregnancy uh, to ensure that they have have enough of those right. so uh, that's crucial why they, chemicals for these pathways. That's why they add folic acid into foods already um, for those mothers. So, I mean, I've heard about MTHFR mutations or changes in, in, in there that would influence your methylation status and... Uh, then it really matters what kind of form you're getting. If you're getting an active form or, or just the basic building blocks. Is that right? So that, I guess that's one of the big things that is now thrown around as things you should do with a genetic test is to look at your MTHFR status and then maybe change your supplementation. Yeah, so... Yeah, I guess when it comes to MTHFR, you're you're talking about an enzyme or a protein that's that's really involved in that that one carbon metabolism cycle. That's that's crucial to be to be generating enough of of the methyl donor that is required for your epigenetic maintenance. So to ensure that you have uh, correctly placed and enough DNA methylation to repress retroviral elements to ensure that your cells keep functioning in the way they should. So to ensure that your skin cells stay working like skin cells and don't become brain cells or anything else. Um, and, and as you mentioned, there are, there are mutations uh, that have become very uh, popularized within people that are taking genetic tests that look at uh, MTHFR uh, and mutations within it, which again, Uh, from a raise, you only get access to a, a small subset of those MTHFR positions. But in reality, when you look at a, um, the full genetic sequence of that gene, there are thousands of, of variants that differ between people in that gene. Right. Um, and and definitely, people that have um, 
mutations in that gene should should take uh, extra care or consult with a doctor um, when when undergoing pregnancy. Right. Okay. Cool. So I'm really eager to see some of my results. What we we can learn from my epigenetic test. So uh, is that a, is this a good moment? Maybe we'll jump into it and take a look at you know what kind of uh, freak of nature I become. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think we've we've got some time to to quickly quickly dive in, uh, check out your biological age. So yeah. I guess for some for some background. So from in terms of the the chronomics epigenetic test. So you uh, received your cyber testing kit in the post. There was no blood, no needles. Yeah. Uh, you've then sent that back to us. Uh, we have then processed that using next generation sequencing technology. Uh, and using this technology, we're looking at, uh, we're looking at millions, over 20 million epigenetic positions in your genome. And from a genetics perspective, that's over, over half a billion genetic positions that we're, we're able to access as well with that information. And then from this information, we're deriving specific indicators, as we mentioned, for how environment and lifestyle is affecting your health and your, your likelihood of future ill health due to, to age-related diseases. Uh, and then through the product uh, shown here that we have for Timu, then diving in to look at uh, what these epigenetic indicators mean, how they compare, and also um, through the, the My Future section, there's also access to, to a team of people to support, to support you through, uh, through taking the next steps to actually improve your health. So, okay. So here we have Timu's now got up on the main screen, his, his epigenetic results. And Timu, correct me if I'm wrong, has not seen these results at all. No, not at all. Uh, so, so this will be a total so, surprise. <laughs> so here we have the, the homepage and here we have uh, the health section and improvement section highlighted. So Timu's latest epigenetic results are available. So just in the interest of time, we'll just dive, dive straight in here. And here we have Timu's health insights from his epigenome. So up top, we have the three largest risk factors for age-related and chronic conditions. So we have biological age, which as measured by epigenetics is... Uh, the gold standard in, in biological age prediction and is associated with all-cause mortality. Uh, so um, a lower biological age reduces your risk for uh, things like heart disease, cancer, um, type 2 diabetes, etc. Uh, we also have smoke exposure where a, a high score is associated with things such as lung cancer and heart disease and metabolic state, which is a, a composite of uh, how your diet and nutrition, your exercise, uh, your metabolic rate, and also genetic predispositions are playing out at the level of your epigenome over time. Okay, cool. So, 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 so let's uh, give a few kind of pointers where I'm at right now. So in terms of uh, real age, kind of chronological age, I'm 37 years old. Uh, smoke exposure. I'm not smoking cigarettes and uh, no one is smoking where I work. There's occasionally 
someone on the inner courtyard. I can smell that. But definitely, I'm not not I'm not going to bars on weekends, uh, so I'm not getting exposed to passive smoking. Uh, there was so a lot of uh, tobacco smoking in my childhood home, but not not anymore. And when it comes to metabolic status, uh, when I did this test, I think uh, yeah, I, I I had started to exercise more, um, but then. Uh, yeah, I got an injury and I was pretty much not doing much for three three months while I was healing my shoulder. So uh, I would like to know, like, how quickly can uh, do you see changes happening uh, in your tests if you do every six months? So how quickly could I change something like my biological age or my metabolic status uh, if I change something in my behavior? Or are these more long-term? Yeah, great, great question, Timo. So these are... Uh, so epigenetics is is not something that's fluctuating on a daily basis. It's something that's really measuring uh, your longer term propensity for these these age related illnesses. And also, the the exciting thing about epigenetics is that it has a component of memory. So if we take the biological age indicator, it knows from a biological perspective how many years you've lived up till now. If we take smoke exposure. If you, um, if you quit smoking, it wouldn't just return to normal uh, as a chemical readout would. Hmm. It would take many years to, to get back down to the level of a, a non-smoker if you had been a smoker, for instance. Okay. Um, so when people have done these, um, these studies, uh, typically people, the shortest time frame that, that scientists have looked at to look at changes has been three months. Uh, and there people have seen changes in dietary related interventions, exercise related interventions, clinical interventions, uh, and smoke, smoking related interventions amongst others. Uh, so you do see changes at a three month time point, but they tend to be in cases where, uh, there has been a significant change in the person's environment or lifestyle, uh, more typically over six months to a year time frame, you would expect to see see changes okay cool so let's let's dive in i i think everyone is yeah, eager to see how absolutely so let's let's dive into the biological age indicator all right so 35 okay so i'm so, 37 so two years younger yeah so when we how old were you when you took the test uh i think i was 37 yeah 37 okay so then you're yeah two years two years younger than your um, than your chronological age. So that is great news. And you've clearly, you mentioned earlier that you've been on that entrepreneurial streak during your, your 20s and have now had the benefits of, of biohacking and improving your health um, over the past seven years. And clearly from the looks of things, this this is showing up in your in your epigenome. So to put this into context, we have, um, alongside myself, other entrepreneurs that are, have provided us with their, or who have conducted epigenetics tests with us, and there you see accelerated epigenetic ages relative to chronological ages hmm. is, is typical. Uh, as you can imagine, and I'm sure, Timu, as you have experienced with early stage companies and the the environment and the, the stress of that and the late nights has an impact on biological age and therefore your your health. 
Yeah. And what's great to see is that not only have you overcome that potentially high biological age when you're younger, but it's actually looking younger than your chronological age already. So that's, that's exciting to see. I, I, read, uh, I read from somewhere that around 60% of startup entrepreneurs who raise funding, they get signs of burnout within two years. And uh, that yeah. doesn't sound very good. So definitely the fundraising never stops. Now, okay, so, <laughs> so I've been able to turn back the clock. Now, what comes to my mind immediately in terms of curiosity is, is this related to uh, telomeres or is this some other type of a test? So telomeres are the ends in chromosomes, I assume, that shorten Yeah, stress. that is, yeah. Yeah, so that is a great question. So as you say, telomeres are those, uh, the butt ends, if you like, on your, on your chromosomes. Uh, in this case, we are measuring epigenetics instead of the, the length of those butt ends of your DNA, those telomeres. And what's great about epigenetics is that it's not just looking at, at telomere um, attrition as a measure of biological age, but it's actually pulling on lots of underlying molecular functions to give a better overarching biological age measure. And what has been shown as well is that biological age as measured from epigenetics and telomere length do have an association. Um, so there is a component of that telomere length or telomere attrition that is picked up in the signal of the, the epigenetic age. Um, but epigenetics is providing uh, a, more, a more accurate predictor and also a more overarching predictor of all the different functions happening within your body. So to put that in into numbers, uh, typically telomere length um, correlated with age, you're looking at a correlation of 0 0.7, 0 0.6, 0 0.7. Uh, with epigenetics, you're looking at a correlation uh, 0 0.96 to 8 or something, if not more. I see. So it's, it's much... Uh, much more accurate from that perspective and also is, is capturing capturing different things. And then just from a practical perspective, uh, epigenetic age is something you can pick up in, in all tissues throughout your body. So this epigenetic age or epigenetic clock phenomenon is something that isn't just happening in your blood, as is the case of telomere lengths, but it's happening in your saliva, uh, urine, the cells in your heart, in your liver, your skin. Uh, and so you can pick up this measure in in all these different different tissues. So it also means no needles. Hmm. Well, wow. So um, uh, sounds like a much more accurate way to measure uh, your biological age and understanding all the all the underlying things that then contribute to aging process. Now, definitely taking something like this and then combining that with indicators from your blood also that can be used to assess uh, lifespan and life expectancy uh, from here on is, is, uh, is a good way to go forward. Now, uh, what, what else can we hear? Uh, can we learn from this um, test here? Yeah, so, so again, within, within each indicator, we also provide you with uh, healthy ranges, so shown here. Uh, and you can kind of see where where you can expect your your next test to fall. Hopefully, um, we also <laughs> give you the option of telling us how old how old you feel. I uh, feel so like a couple of people that I feel up. like thirty. You can actually pick it up for me. Thirty. Thirty. Yeah. 
actually even younger because um, let's put 25 because uh, the the uh, when I was 30 I was uh, I, I definitely didn't feel as good as I do now cool and then and then the other thing we have is then comparisons so we have comparisons to super centenarians so these are people that live till 110 and beyond uh, and the, when you take those people back from an epigenetic perspective to what their biological age would have been uh, when they were your age, it falls within uh, 30 to 36. So what this is saying is your biological age, as it is right now, falls within the range of people that will go on to live to 110 plus. Nice one. Uh, so so still is, within the range. That's pretty good Yeah. Yeah, so so I, now I have some proof that I might make it. Um, if I moved to the countryside, uh, would I be able to improve my situation? Yeah. So again, from a uh, from a statistics perspective, looking at looking at people your age, what you see is that people that live in inv- in urban environments tend to have uh, an older biological age than people that live in uh, rural environments. So again, suggesting that the that pollutant exposure, the stress um, of that that lifestyle, is impacting people's uh, biological ages here. Hmm. Uh, so so yes, the it looks like it it would have some sort of impact on your biological age. And then what we can also do is uh, dig a bit deeper into the science, so we can give you <coughs> insight into. Um, out of the positions that we use in the model. So as I said, we look at over 20 million chins. And from these, um, we use machine learning algorithms uh, in-house to derive um, this set of positions that are used for your uh, biological age predictor. And you can see that 52% of these positions in the model, you look younger than your age. And on the flip side of that 48%, you're looking, you're looking older than your age. And what's, What's also great um, is we also provide you with access to be able to understand um, at a high level how how these models are derived and to also show you, as I was uh, mentioning earlier, the the positions used in these models fall throughout the genome. So here we have a representation of your whole genome shown in chromosomes uh, and the highlighted pink areas are the positions that we're using to derive your epigenetic prediction. And so you can see that they fall fall throughout. And then we also provide some references for people who want to dive into the science more. Uh, In addition to uh, FAQs, so if people want to understand um, how accurate their insights are, how it's calculated, um, what diseases are associated with higher biological age, they can find it here. Nice. So to head back to, so smoke exposure, uh, you mentioned is something you, you haven't really ever done very little exposure to. So we're not expecting, uh, anything, uh, especially huge here. Um, so let's have a look. So 1%. So this, that's very low. So this is a, uh, smoke exposure risk score. And what we're showing here is that you, this is out of a hundred percent, hundred percent being, uh, super high risk, almost basically no one is there. Um, this is how much smoke exposure is affecting your health uh, as a risk factor for, for, for instance, lung cancer and heart disease and other diseases. 
Right. So if I did um, this you... test repeatedly, I could see how I perhaps get exposed to tobacco smoke. And if I move to a new city or I change my colleagues exactly. or my lifestyle, I could see a change. Exactly. So what we have, um, so I guess some inst- in- interesting cases we've seen are where we have, for instance, athletes who, because of the nature of the sports that they take part in, are surrounded by people that are smoking quite a lot. And they can often have smoke exposure risk uh, percentages up almost into the 60%. So they look like they're smoking regularly, even though they've never smoked in their life, just because of the environment that they're in. Um, But it seems like, as you mentioned, you know, you're not... um, spending time in bars or around people that are smoking. So it seems um, that, that that's, that's enough to have massively uh, impacted and supported this, this low smoke exposure. In Finland, uh, smoking inside, in restaurants, etc., was banned some years ago, I think, across the European Union. So I guess yeah, yeah. that made a huge impact to general public health especially those who are non-smokers and probably also to those who smoke probably reduced the the amount that they habitually smoke so i guess that's kind of one of the best things the european union has definitely done for our health on a collective level absolutely and definitely from our our customers that is that is a period of time that's of interest because they're wanting uh especially for people who used to smoke, they're wanting to see where they are today and the impact that those measures taken by the European Union have had on their their health. Uh, So we have a number of customers who now in their 40s or 50s who used to smoke in their 20s who now have smoke exposure levels around the 30%. So nowhere near what they would have been whilst they were actually smoking. Right. Right. so again, just to put, put your results in context, you can see that um, compared to non-smokers even, you're at the very low end of people. Uh, former smokers, as I mentioned, there's a whole range depending on how many years ago they gave up, uh, how much they were smoking at the time, etc. cetera. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, smokers uh, are at the higher end of the spectrum, but it's very, you, you just don't see anyone at 100%. Uh, presumably because it it's just <laughs> it's not a state that that anyone is able to ever get to uh, because of mm. how how poor it is for right. your health uh, just uh, just a question uh, if someone smoked yeah. things like pot would that show up here <laughs> <clears throat> so it depends if they were smoking it with tobacco or if they were smoking it um, straight I guess uh, I see. Uh, okay so there's a difference there yeah, so if there was if there was uh, tobacco in it, um, then you would you would pick it up. But it's not picking up um, THC or, or cannabinoids or, or things of that nature. Okay, right. Anyway, I'm not a smoker that of would cannabis be... either. So, so just out of curiosity, if someone did. No, no. So that that shouldn't be picked up. Um, we have had interest uh, from a number of customers uh, keen to keen to make uh, a, a marijuana or, or THC or cannabinoid predictor with us. Um, but 
for that, we, we would still need more customers that are um, currently, currently participating in, hmm. um, in smoking marijuana. What about vaporizing <laughs> tobacco? Like if I, if I used one of those vapes? Yeah, so this, this is super interesting. Um, again, I think we still need more data to be able to say conclusively, but there are, there are interesting, interesting things coming up around vaping versus, um, versus smoking and the differences that has within the epigenome. Um, but yeah, nothing I can share at the moment, but it's, it's an interesting space, uh, especially because of where things are heading and how people are being encouraged in terms of their behavior. Um, I think, yeah, watch out for that, for this space. It's going to be interesting. Hmm. Right. Okay. And then we go and take a look at the last component, which is metabolic status. Correct. So 33%. So this is looking at uh, your, your metabolic risk profile. Uh, so how at risk are you because of environment, lifestyle, and, and genetics um, to, to develop in the future things such as metabolic syndrome or, or type 2 diabetes. And 33% is still a, a very good score. Uh, so it's still within, within the healthy range. Um, depending on who you're looking at, um, these, these can look quite distinct. So, for instance, we have, have athletes that are uh, rugby players who would be, from a, a BMI measure, uh, clinically obese, Uh, and they can fall within uh, 40% or something on a 40 to 60% on an epigenetic scale. So still within, within that healthy range. Uh, we have other people who uh, would be called, I guess, uh, big boned, um, but would also look obese who, who again fall within healthy range. Uh, and then we have on the flip side of that, we have other types of athlete uh, more on the endurance side of things who have incredibly low, metabolic state scores um, because of the, the fine tuning that their body has been, has been put through and they can have metabolic states around about kind of 10% or something like that. Uh, mm. So their risk is, is much reduced compared to, to most people. Right. So, uh, so basically the higher the number, the better or the lower? The lower the number, the better. Uh, so if you were epigenetically, Um, at high risk or epigenetically obese, if you like, then you would be appearing in this white area. Uh, and if you fall within the healthy range, then you would be appearing appearing here. Okay. Okay. So if I now start a regimen of strength training, which I've done, and if yeah. I measured myself after six months of, of doing that uh, several times a week, Um, yeah. How much would I expect a change? Like, would it be at the number of one or two or five or ten? Yeah, I think it would. It would need. It would really depend on um, on the difference in terms of kind of the amount of strength training you were doing, what that compares to what you're currently doing. Uh, but you could expect it to be. Uh, a significant difference. So it could be up to, I'd say, 10%. I'd say more than 10% is going to be uh, unlikely that you're going to be able to move the needle that much in that shorter time frame. Hmm. 
but definitely, if you want to alter this number, it's through yeah changes to metabolism. So due to changes to diet and nutrition, changes to exercise, uh, to sleep as well, that obviously feeds into uh, metabolic rates and things like that. Uh, and then also mental well-being, so stress levels, these sorts of things that that affect how your metabolism is functioning as well. Right. So if I plan to make children, let's say in one or two years, uh, I could start today and I could use this to track that I'm uh, genetically improving. And uh, there are some of these studies that show that it's a good idea for the father to be exercising before giving birth. So uh, yeah, I could use this to track that. Yeah, you could use this to see how how your your metabolic state or how your metabolism at an epigenetic level is changing over time and how your your risk or your metabolic risk, if you like, is changing over time uh, to, to ensure that you're getting into the, the best shape possible. Super interesting. Hmm. Uh, I was going to say, and then the other aspect of, of the product. So at the bottom of each indicator, we give personalized uh, recommendations for, for any one individual. Uh, based on their their indicator scores. And then we also provide people with access to a health team. So here we have uh, your health team, Timu. So we have a a doctor, uh, in this case, Dilraj, um, and he can help with things that may be more related to chronic illness management and things like that. We have Danny who can help uh, provide you with more insights or diving deeper into the epigenetics, should you wish. Uh, and then we also have Effie, who's a nutritionist and functional doctor who can support um, you with any dietary or, or lifestyle interventions that you want to wanted to start. And just to mention, all of this is managed in a very GDPR and uh, data privacy friendly manner. So you're completely in control. None of them get to see any of your data until you add them to your team. And then you can choose how you want to add them, whether you want them to be able to see anonymized information about yourself to provide you with some information back, uh, whether you want them to have all the data they need to do what they need to do to, to give you the best health outcomes they can, or whether you just want to share everything with them for ease of use. Uh, and then you can add them to team once you've accepted, uh, and then book in, book in times with them to, to discuss your health and how best to take advantage of the information. Wonderful. Cool. Um, is there something more about the product you want to show or should we get uh, some final comments? Yeah, so I guess um, just for the looking forward towards the, the Biohacker Summit, uh, there are some, some really exciting uh, new features and things coming out in the product. Uh, so we have, um, so biological age, as measured here, as I mentioned, is not just uh, not just a like a telomere length measurement looking at one specific aspect of health, but is actually a composite of lots of different things. And so we're bringing out a new indicator called chromosome aging, which looks at how your biological age is breaking down over different bits of your genome. So you can see how your genome is aging across the genome. Uh, and then another aspect we're bringing out is a, a futures area. So you can see actually in terms of months gained in life, how how different interventions will affect biological age. Right. So basically, um, if you so do a test like this, if, if I did a test like this today, you would be, as you improve your product, I would be getting 
new results uh, over time as a customer of yours? As you Absolutely. So, so Timu, you as, you as a customer will be getting these insights updated for your, your current results. And you would also be then able to see, um, yeah, see your next set of results in comparison to those. Yeah, this is super interesting. Uh, very useful. Um, really adds on the other genetic tests that I've done and definitely gives me some markers to pay attention to. So if nothing else, it can motivate someone to stop smoking or stop living in a polluted city. And uh, also uh, in terms of things like metabolic health to start exercising. So it, it supports healthy lifestyle choices for sure. And if nothing else, if you feel like you're a biohacker and you know you want to know after, like me, after seven years or whatever, you've been getting into healthy lifestyle, if that has made a change in your biological age compared to all those um, basically teen years and uh, entrepreneurial years, killing yourself to death would work. I mean, you can see if you're reversing the clock here. So amazing. Thank you very much, sir. Um, I'm happy to know that I'm, the, I'm on the right path and I definitely continue figuring every and all means that I can do to get really to the age what I feel like I'm at, which is 25. <laughs> so I know that hormonally I've been able to achieve that. So hormonally, um, when I started doing lab tests, I was at 30, I looked at like I was 45. And now at 37, I look like more like 25, which is actually pretty good um, also. So there's labs and um, yeah, Maybe we have some cool announcements about that later on as well, because I'm an advisor to a company called Health DX that uh, does lab testing and uh, full blood work, look, looking at nutrition and metabolics from from full blood, and you can see things like long-term uh, exposure to micronutrients like magnesium that you can see from some very basic blood work. Uh, so, so yeah, there you have it. So uh, thank you very much, Dr. Tom Stubbs. And where can people find more information about the chronomics test? And if you have any other pointers that you want to want to point people to. Yeah, absolutely. So people can find out about chronomics at www.chronomics.com. So C-H-R-O-N-O-M-I-C-S.com. Uh, they can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, at Chronomics, and on Twitter, at Chronometry. And as part of the, the podcast and the Biohacker Summit, we also have an exclusive discount for, uh, for your, your members and followers, um, which, which we'll share after the, after the podcast. Awesome. So we're putting this all together. If you follow us, at uh, biohackersummit.com you can sign up for our newsletter and you will get the offer for the chronomics test and uh, also if you are uh, following the biohackers handbook list we're going to sh- send it there as well and we really look forward to your keynote on, on this that will uh, help people to understand better uh, how they can use genetic information and epigenetic information to optimize their health status on a daily basis, because in the end, it is not one or two things that you do, like a 30-day 
get fit program that you do online once a year, but it's really the the daily decrease of exposure to pollutants and uh, poor lifestyle choices and the daily increase of the things that are beneficial to you. Perhaps I need more nature in my life. Uh, for sure, I, I feel that. I, I was on the weekend in the woods and uh, I slept better than in ages. And I, I really long for maybe getting a cabin for myself at some point in life. And uh, yeah, with that... Um, Thank you very much uh, for helping us to understand genetics, where we are right now in terms of science and practical application. And uh, yeah, uh, looking forward to seeing all of you at the Barker Summit. And uh, anyone who's interested to join us there, uh, just go to uh, www.bihackersummit.com and you can find more information about the Barker Summit in Helsinki, Finland. Uh, it's our five-year anniversary. We have 40-plus speakers coming, a couple of thousand people. It's something you really want to invest your time in. All right. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you very much, Timu. Great to be on the show. <laughs>